Welcome to the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast. This is your host, Scott Tracy. The Los Angeles Examiner has written the headline to remember. The Los Angeles Times has written a headline to forget. It's difficult to conceive in today's world how essential daily newspapers were to our culture in the 1940s. The Second World War had turned Americans into news junkies. Every day there were stories on three fronts, from Pearl Harbor to the atomic bomb, from Adolf Hitler to Alger Hiss. The future of civilization had been at stake, and the excitement of war news created a public that had become addicted to reading the paper like never before. The American public is still thirsty for news after VJ Day, and the impact of news that you can hold in your hand has the greatest reach in media. Although it's peacetime, the American newspapers are very much at war with their rivals. In 1947, the newspapers are either a morning or evening publication. The Los Angeles Times was the more successful morning newspaper. The Los Angeles Herald Express was the primary evening paper. The Hearst Morning Paper was the examiner. Morning papers are delivered to homes and offices, and businessmen and housewives can read the paper at their leisure. The Los Angeles Times, very much a white-collar publication, a cheerleader of business interests, and the Times is historically an anti-union publication. In contrast, the evening papers are sold to the working-class readers by sight and sound. At the newsstand, a paper needs big headlines to jump out so that it can be read from a distance. The afternoon newspapers give the public the news that the morning papers don't have. Up-to-date stock market news, horse racing results, night baseball scores. And citizens then are going to read the paper at home at dinner time, just as we commonly might watch the television news. But bold, dramatic headlines are the key to evening newspaper sales. A headline needs to grab the attention of the public, or you'll buy the other paper that has the better headline. Newsies, 10, 11-year-old boys, are screaming out lurid headlines to sell newspapers at trolley stops and train stations. For example, head and torso murder still missing was shouted out by young lads on street corners on January 28, 1946. That's a headline that grabs. Jane Doe number one would become the number one story of 1947. And the Hearst newspaper offered one of the most successful headlines in history, and the paper sold the most copies of any issue in the post-war period. It is an expressive, shocking, and descriptive headline. Girl tortured and slain. Hacked nude body found in L.A. lot. The Herald gets everything right on that front page. Notice the sequence is correct. Elizabeth Short is tortured, then killed, then cut in half, and displayed in a vacant lot. Remarkable in contrast, the headline in the Los Angeles Times is less successful, beginning with the fact that it's on page two. Girl, victim of sex fiend found slain, but it's a two-column headline. When I was a journalism student, I was given an example of how not to write a headline. And the story as an example 
was discussing Stalin's programs about the undeveloped areas of Siberia. The headline was, Russian virgin lands, semicolon, short of goal again. The problem was, the way the headline translates when it shrunk into a one-column story. So the first line is, Russian virgin. The second line is, land short. The third line, of goal again. Russian virgin land short of goal again. So it, it sounds like a call for help, honestly. The Los Angeles Times Black Dahlia headline fails when the words are crammed into two columns. The first line now reads, girl victim of sex, and the second line reads, fiend found slain. As if the fiend is murdered and the crime committed against the woman was sex. And this subheadline is troublesome to me as well. Nude mutilated body indicates, first line, orgy of torture before murder, second line. Well, nude and orgy, those really jump out. And the subheadline bonds with the use of sex and the primer headline. It, it strikes me as a, a bit distasteful and heavy handed. Another copy editor might have chosen to say frenzy of torture, for example. Although I recognize that there is pleasure that the killer gets from uh, the orgy of torture, from his controlling environment. But for the rest of us, orgy is very inappropriate. The headline draws the reader, but it creates a kind of uncomfortable connection as if we, the readers, are meant to feel what the killer feels. The language has kind of a pulp quality to it. Orgy of torture sounds like one of the men's illustrated uh, magazines that would have that sexy cover in post-war uh, pulp magazines like uh, Hostages in Hitler's Passion Cave, Orgy of Torture Before Murder. Now the two main newspapers use very different pictures as well. The Herald airbrushes a blanket over the hacked and nude body without explanation. The Los Angeles Times shows the location of the body from a very safe distance and at a very low height. The photo is taken at the level of a car's lug nuts. So the grass on Norton Avenue is tall enough to obscure the dead body and the reporters and the police are taller than the telephone poles on the next block. And they stand with their backs to the camera and their eyes down on the unseen body as if they are praying. The significance of the success of the Herald headline was not lost on the Hearst newspaper syndicate. Detective Finnis Brown spoke about the placement of the victim on the grass and the press coverage during the grand jury inquest in 1949. Quote, the two halves were about a foot apart, but the legs were spread, and the type of mutilation that was done would indicate a person, to my estimation, who had a mania for publicity. The newspapers up until the 23rd, when things started to slack off, and we only had one page in the newspaper, one column, the 23rd, the 24th. That night we received the belongings of the short girl, and the next day it was full. The papers were full of it then. It continued that way until altogether about 33 days, to my estimation, the person that sent that in because they wanted publicity to gloat over the fact that they had been successful in their crime and they got a kick out of it. The reason to quote Detective Brown is to point out how important the press is to the killer. 
and how important an ongoing crime story is to the afternoon papers in particular. The killer sought anonymous notoriety. The paper needed everybody's nickel. The relationship of the killer and the press is a courtship made in hell. One subscribed to morning papers that came automatically. The afternoon papers bought on a whim. So competition is fierce. The Herald wrote better headlines or they went broke. This press coverage that Detective Brown speaks of when he says 33 days is referring to the Hearst newspapers, not the Los Angeles Times. I mentioned that the murder story is on page two on January 16, 1947. The front page of the Los Angeles Times is concerned with the request of the mayor for issuing $40 million in bonds. And there's a strike in London that's the worst labor crisis in 40 years. Ford Motor Company is cutting the prices of new cars by $15 to $50. And Eleanor Roosevelt's driver's license is being revoked. During the post-war decade, the Black Dahlia story was never front page news in the Los Angeles Times. Once again, a strike in London, Ford drops prices and Eleanor can't drive. Front page news in the Los Angeles Times. For the Herald, girl tortured and slain, hack nude body found in LA lot. The Los Angeles police canvass the Norton Avenue neighborhood and locate witness Bob Meyer. Meyer lives one street west of Norton Avenue at, at South Bronson, 3900. Bob Meyer told the police and the press that he saw an older Ford sedan, black in color, 1936 or 1937, parked near the place where the body was found between 6.30 and 7 a.m. Sunrise on that day was 6.59, so it's not surprising that Bob Meyer is not able to describe the driver from a block away. Mr. Meyer observes the parked car on the street for four minutes, then sees the driver speed away. The implication is, is that the killer, four minutes is not much time. The body was dumped hours earlier than that because the coroner suggests that she's been dead for 10 hours when she was discovered. So it's possible the killer is returning to the crime scene. How suspicious is it now that a car would speed away as the sun rises? Think about that part of it, because most likely the driver of the older black Ford saw something white in the grass from the road as the morning light struck the body and drove near enough to realize he should peel out. Given the isolation of the lot, it's understandable that no one else comes forward to say they saw the body placed or the killer drive away. Also notice that people are very curious about people who are parking on Norton Avenue. I mean, we get back to the lover's lane thing. Janice Knowlton wrote a book called Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer, and she relates the tale of a 38-year-old Los Angeles Fire Department Captain Bill Nash, who was test driving his tuned-up Plymouth that morning on Norton Avenue. He's accompanied by his neighbor, Roy Preston, and he comes upon what Nash thinks is a statue in the weeds. Could Nash's Plymouth be the car that Bob Meyer saw drive away? Can Bob Meyer tell a black Ford from a black Plymouth from a block away at the crack of dawn? Uh, 
there'll be pictures on the web on that. Nash calls the police when he got home, according to Knowlton. However, Nash's account is not mentioned in any major newspaper. What are we to make of this story? It's logical and fits the pieces as we know them. And it's common for a person to be curious about a large item that someone else might have thrown out. So, is his story true? I'm not really bothered by it not being in a major newspaper. Knowlton tells a very detailed story mentioning that Nash has changed his spark plugs, he's road testing his car, Preston vomits after they get back to Greyburn Avenue. I'm bringing this up because it, it does showcase the difficulty of the challenges that one finds when trying to tell the Black Dahlia story. How should I categorize this event? How do I decide to accept it or reject it? I have a hierarchy that I want to share with you. Fact, conjecture, supposition, assumption, and theory. A fact would be well documented. An example, the autopsy. Conjecture is highly probable, unproven but accepted as all facts point in that direction. For example, the body is displayed because the killer seeks attention. Supposition would be a solid possibility, an interpretation that is based on logic. For example, Beth Short had a destination in mind when she headed south on Olive Street on January 7th. An assumption is an interpretation that makes sense. Many of the assumptions that we make about um, the Black Dahlia murder are assumptions that are emotionally driven. So, for example, Elizabeth got her name because she wears flowers in her hair. There's an emotion to that. The Glasgow uh, smile, there's an emotion to that. And a theory would be just a solid guess that requires uh, quite a bit of weaving of assumptions and supposition. For example, my father is a serial killer would be such a, a theory. So, what do we believe when there's so many suppositions and assumptions in the case, especially when we're reading these books? The story of Bill Nash is illustrated because of the difficulty one has when you're seeking a path to the truth, which is our goal. Did Janice Nolson make the whole thing up? In her book, she states she interviewed the 84-year-old Bill Nash on November 4th, 1992, and Nash speaks with clarity, remembers many details. That seems very truthful and believable to read about. Knowlton says she read about it in the Hollywood Citizen News in a paper dated January 15th, not 16th, 15th, 1947. My initial search led me to believe that the Hollywood Citizen News uh, ceased publication in 1944, but actually, according to the Library of Congress, the name changes to the Citizen News in 44, then reverts back to the Hollywood Citizen News in 45. Now, this is a lot of digging for a minor detail, but I'm only discussing it because it showcases how far one has to go to reach the facts and to sift through the myths and lies to find the result that is truth. In this case, it's frustrating because our efforts uh, bring more questions. The newspapers focus on Bob Meyer because there is a short, dark man who pays Mrs. Short's rent on occasion when she'd lived in a Hollywood hotel. 
and he lives in a Beverly Hills apartment on Crescent Drive and drove an old black Ford sedan, similar to the one observed by the Mr. Meyer on the vacant lot just a few hours before the bodies discovered. It is reported that the police make the first arrest. With the encouragement of Los Angeles police psychologist, Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, the early investigative focus is on repeat offenders of sex crimes. The headline in the Herald Express is, Youth Grilled as Werewolf Suspect. Quote, the modern counterpart of a medieval torture chamber in which a slim, attractive young girl writhed for hours before her brutal murder by a werewolf killer was sought by detectives today. Like the victims of predatory killers, assuming the form of a wolf in ancient folklore, the body was gashed and mutilated almost beyond recognition. This is quite a leap. We start with the Iron Maiden and we transform into the Little Red Riding Hood story with a very bad werewolf. Aggie Underwood has written this story and it very much has a, a pulp style to it. I just want to point that out. Who is arrested is Cecil French. He's a 23-year-old man from Bakersfield who's accused of molesting two girls at the bus depot. They examine his car, they find no bloodstains, and all results are negative. Cecil is released. The Metropolitan Pasadena Star News states that over 100 men have been rounded up and questioned overnight, then released. It's kind of amazing to have 100 suspects on day one. But uh, these 100 men are not suspects based on clues. J. Paul DeRiver's files is the source because he has uh, a catalog of sexual deviance. Mr. DeRiver uh, is the first psychologist hired by an American police department, and he has created this sex uh, offender registry. This is a time when this category of sexual deviance is going to extend to homosexuality. And so that oral sex and sodomy are crimes that can be prosecuted. And so that's his version of a deviant, not just simply someone that might uh, molest women. And the harassment of the gay community is a common procedure for police during this time. And it becomes important as a few of the drinking establishments that Elizabeth Short frequents are gay bars. And so there's going to be a resistance to the clientele to talk to the police and inquisitors. Uh, reporters tend to have a little better luck than the police are seen as being threatening. Driver uh, is famous in some respects. He deserves a certain amount of uh, credit absolutely for creating this file of sexual uh, criminals. But he also created the first actionable profile of a killer in 1937. And I'm going to go into this uh, a bit more. Driver's career starts in 1934 for the Los Angeles Police Department as he volunteers to assist the Los Angeles City Probation Department and as a consulting psychiatrist, 
Deriver is working gratis because, quote, I was devoting my whole time to that because I was pioneering a new field, criminal psychiatry, and I was interested in it. There wasn't nobody interested in the sex degenerate. There was very little written in textbooks by anyone of authority, so I went after it in a practical way. In response to the murder of the three babes of Inglewood, June 1937, Deriver used the bodies of the three little girls in the morgue and examines the physical evidence at the crime scene and wrote the following, quote, Look for one man, probably in his 20s, a pedophile who might have been arrested before for annoying children. He's a sadist with a superabundance of curiosity. He's a very meticulous and probably now remorseful, as most sadists are very apt to be masochistic after expressing sadism. The slayer might have a, a religious streak and even become prayerful. Moreover, he is a spectacular type and has done this thing before, not on a sudden impulse, but as a deliberately planned affair. I am of the opinion he had obtained the confidence of these little girls. I believe they knew the man and trusted him. End quote. This idea of forensic profiling is very well received, and indeed, with the exception of the age, this profile describes the likely killer fairly well. Two assumptions that may not apply to certain types of criminals. Deriver deals with criminals who confess and feel remorse. Serial killers and psychopaths don't have feelings for victims. So there's no regret or desire to confess because psychopaths think victims were born to be victims. This is beyond Deriver's scope of understanding, but let's return to the crime. Other children in the park remember a man who would show children rope tricks, who drove a beat-up truck and told little girls he could catch a rabbit for them if they would just go with him in his truck. Fred Godsey was named the suspect. From the front page of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 3rd, 1937, Indian hunted as child slayer. Suspect identified in Inglewood. Search opened throughout the West for ex-convict Fred Godsey, 34-year-old, one-quarter blood Cherokee Indian and convicted felon. Last night was the wanted suspect in the murder a week ago today of Madeline and Melba Everett and Jeannie Stevens in the Baldwin Hills near Inglewood. Godsey, who fits perfectly the composite description of Eddie the Sailor, who was seen by several witnesses luring the three schoolgirls from Sentinella Park to their horrible death, was being hunted by every law enforcement agency in the Rocky Mountain states and the Pacific Coast. End quote. By Monday, the headlines on the front page are very different. A 34-year-old school crossguard, Albert Dyer, has confessed. Not only does Dyer not fit the profile, this mentally challenged man has been coerced into confessing. Dyer recants and then is pressured again. Told of nine times he confesses and five times he recants. Dyer has the mental comprehension level of the children that he walks across the street on the way to school. His IQ is judged to be 60. In the language of 1937, he is a moron. 
When asked what country is south of the United States, Dyer said, Alaska. He has the process, of course, also of that nine-year-old child. He can't drive. He doesn't know rope tricks. He doesn't know north from west. Because he's a crossing guard, emotionally he's at loss that the children he watches over has been kidnapped and killed and is totally unable to process the horror of that. Sadly, Dyer has zero comprehension of the danger he's in. Quote, I hope I get probation so I can go back to my wife and get a good job and buy her some pretty things, end quote. There is no physical evidence to link Dyer to the crime, but the police have a confession and that ends the search for Fred Godsey. The Everett family is concerned. The children in Sentinella Park knew Dyer and would have stated that he was the one that they saw with the children. Of course, Dyer doesn't drive, so the police convince a jury that Dyer is a kind of Pied Piper that has three children walk behind him for miles through thick brush and over steep ravines. Merrill Everett said, My daughters didn't walk from that park where they disappeared to the place where they were killed. They were carried away in an automobile. The Everett family and others are alarmed that a child killer is on the loose and will kill again, and they petition to have Dyer released. Their insight and pleas have no effect. Albert Dyer is hanged at San Quentin, September 16, 1938. J. Paul DeRiver assisted the police in attaining Dyer's confession and testified that Dyer was capable to stand trial because he knew right from wrong. To read more about the Dyer case, I recommend Pamela Everett's book, Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family's Secret. Driver shapes the Black Dog investigation from day one. The focus of Driver is of importance for that reason, as opposed to going into Man Ray theories of body placement or background anecdotes like Elizabeth Short's one date with Matt Gordon in Miami. Because we are following the evolution of the investigation in Los Angeles. When Driver says there was nobody interested in the sex degenerate, so I went after it in a practical way. Driver literally means on the simplest level. Before the interview, he measures everyone with a tape. So well-endowed Peter Hernandez kills because he thinks he can get away with it. Leslie Dillon is less well-equipped, therefore he kills to prove he's a man. However, sincere Driver's intent. Ultimately, his ambition exceeds his Victorian skill set and innocent men are sent to death row as a direct result of his misguided sense of duty to the police. This is the day of the autopsy. Dr. Frederick Newbar speaks, quote, I performed an autopsy on Elizabeth Short on January 16, 1947 at the Los Angeles County Coroner's Mortuary and found the immediate cause of death, hemorrhage and shock, due to a concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. There are multiple lacerations to the mid-forehead, in the right forehead, and on top of the head at the midline. There are multiple tiny abrasions, linear in shape, on the right face and forehead. There are two small lacerations, one quarter inch in length, on each side of the nose near the bridge. Multiple blows to the head, however, no fracture of the skull. 
These tiny lacerations on each side of the nose are located where everyone who wears glasses would know, as the nose piece can leave a mark. In combination with the location of some other abrasions to the head, to me it seems to indicate a type of restraint whose purpose would be to forcibly restrict movement of the head. Why else press against the bridge of the nose on both sides? Continuing with new bar. There's a deep laceration on the face, three inches long, which extends laterally from the right corner of the mouth, and a deep laceration two and a half inches long, extending lateral from the left corner of the mouth. The surrounding tissues are echemonic and blush purple in color. So the discoloration indicates the victim has received these deep straight cuts on both sides of the mouth when she was alive. Returning to Nubar. There is no evidence of trauma to the thyroid or tracheal rings. There is a double ridge around the left wrist close to the hand and a double ridge depressed around the right wrist. The fingernails are very short, the thumbnail measuring 5 16th in length and the fingernails measuring 3 16th in length. So Jane Doe number one is not strangled. There's no conclusion as to the type of restraint on her wrists or legs, wire or rope. It's not stated. Dr. Newbar does state that Elizabeth bit her fingernails to the quick during her lifetime. That has very little to do with the crime, obviously. However, the coroner has hoped for evidence of her attacker under her nails. There's not there. Continuing with Newbar. The teeth are in a state of advanced decay. The two upper central incisors are loose and one lower incisor is loose. The rest of the teeth show cavities. Well, this is unrelated to her death, but it's a significant because that's a dramatic amount of decay for a person of her age. She's only 22. So this neglect, perhaps it speaks to self-esteem issues. And there's no polite way to say this. Bad teeth means bad breath. Ignoring personal hygiene is a surprising choice for someone who's attempting to break into show business as a pretty face. Why doesn't she work as a waitress and take care of her smile? Nubar. The trunk of the body is completely severed by an incision, which is straight through at the abdomen, severing the intestine at the duodenum, and through the soft tissue, passing through the invertebrate disc, between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. There is very little ecchymosis along the track of the incision. Well, the use of incision is very instructive. The blade must slice between the second and third vertebrae to allow for the clean cut that strikes no bones. And this is not a common procedure, nor is it common knowledge. So the nature of the cut implies a significant level of skill. Returning to the autopsy. There is an irregular opening on the skin on the interior surface of the left thigh with tissue loss. The opening measures three and a half inches transversely at the base and four inches from the base longitudinally. So this is the location of Elizabeth Short's tattoo. One pound of flesh removed from the thigh and inserted in her vagina. Dubar mentions during the inquest that the flesh is found and leaves it at that. The organs of the abdomen are entirely exposed. There are lacerations of the intestine and both kidneys. The uterus is small and no pregnancy is apparent. 
The tubes, ovaries, and cul-de-sac are intact. The stomach is filled with greenish-brown granular matter, mostly feces and other particles, which could not be identified. All smears for spermazoa were negative. Dr. Newbar, chief autopsy surgeon. This is an imperfect area for internet detectives. What are we to make of statements like particles that could not be identified? There is no official autopsy report for us to read. Indeed, why would there be? We aren't officials. We're just curious folks. We can only know what's stated at the inquest. The body is washed and scrubbed before it's placed in the vacant lot. Coconut fibers were found on the body. The FBI investigates and concludes them to be common, cheap scrub brush bristles. Only a few drops of blood are recovered from the body type AB. The police did request that the vital organs be tested for chemical traces of narcotics. However, that testing never happened. It stated there's a small amount of alcohol present. Elizabeth Short commonly did not drink. I'm curious. I wonder. Had she been given a Mickey Finn? Some sort of sedative? We wish they had tests. It certainly is difficult to read the mutilation done to Elizabeth Short. It's not pleasant to think about her torture. Let's move on to our Watson and Holmes observations. Because Watson is a doctor, we're going to have to give him the autopsy. And I think Watson would have expressed similarities to the savage action of a London madman, Jack the Ripper. And in doing so, Watson would align himself with the 1947 police and press. Agnes Underwood calls the killer a werewolf. It must have been committed by a monster, right? While the shock of the mutilation of the Ripper victims is equal to the shock present on Norton Avenue, the significant connection to the Ripper case is fame, not modus operandi. As the Black Dahlia case reaches back to the Jack the Ripper murders and telescopes forward to the Zodiac Killer because of the taunting of the police through the press. So the Ripper mails a kidney, the Avenger mails the contents of Elizabeth Short's purse, and the Zodiac sends Paul Stein's bloody shirt in to the newspaper. The Sherlock observation would focus on what is not present. So blood, evidence, motive. The autopsy reveals that much of the damage below the neck happens after the victim is dead. That's true for the Ripper as well. However, the Black Dahlia murder is very much the act of an organized killer and the Ripper is disorganized. I think it's time to play our uh, home quiz. On this day, the examiner leads with the headline, Tortured Hack Nude. The Times tells the citizens of Los Angeles that Eleanor Roosevelt cannot drive. Raise your hand if you think that's front page news. Well, certainly it illustrates the difference between the two newspapers. That's why we're highlighting it. More than one writer is going to talk about uh, Limerick Park and they inevitably uh, invest considerable paragraphs explaining Limerick Park. It only makes sense if the neighborhood plays any role in her death. 
and there's no indication that it does. Why would a vacant lot have anything to do with some developer's vision of a suburb and connecting shopping center? The thing to know about Limerick Park in 1947 that in affects the investigation is not the history of Limerick Park, it's the fact that it's unknown to the vast majority of Los Angeles citizens. Limerick Park is an isolated suburb, very much at the outskirts of the city. If you're downtown, you're in Hollywood, you're in Pasadena, there's no reason for you to ever be anywhere near that neighborhood. And so it doesn't matter whether you're going to Miner's Field or you're going to the beach, you're going to the Veterans Hospital, wherever you're going, it's nowhere near your destination. And if you're on Sepulveda Boulevard going to Miner's Field, it's nothing but oil. And so significant areas of Los Angeles are not developed in 1947. At this time, Los Angeles County is the largest agricultural producing county in America. Now that's hard to get your head around if you happen to be on the 405 right now as you listen to the podcast. The other side of the coin is that Los Angeles is the number one county for manufacturing as well. The war had an exponential impact on population. And even to this day, there are more manufacturing jobs in Los Angeles County than there are in the entire state of Michigan. And as these workers needed homes, the developers are buying up orange groves and bean fields and strawberry patches to plant suburbs for the workers and the families that the war industry has brought to Los Angeles. But still, to anyone living in the city today, the amount of undeveloped land is something that jumps out when you see photos of this time period. Now there's a map on the webpage that illustrates how isolated Limerick Park is in 1947. And there's very little reason under any circumstances that most folks would be aware of a vacant lot at Norton Avenue and 39th. At the very end of the Los Angeles Times article, it states that the body is not that of Diana Jean Heaney of Linwood, who had been reported missing on October 16, 1946. The important thing to realize is that the police are not looking for Elizabeth Short because no one has reported her missing. After all, Miss Short has no address. There's only one person that knows she's missing, and that's her killer. There are other young girls that are missing, and the police field many frantic phone calls from worried parents and relatives, and they follow up with any leads that are given with absolutely no result. One more thing. January in Los Angeles is very often a very happy time, and very few things have the effect on those who grew up uh, back east as January in Los Angeles. Most of America is suffering uh, of the twins of winter, snow and ice, and Angelinos start the year watching the Rose Bowl in shirt sleeves. So the year 1947 begins very quietly on the news front. So when the Black Dahlia story breaks, there is no competition for column space. There's interesting news. Armed bandits robbed the Macombo Club on Sunset Boulevard. Crime reported on January 7th. Suspects arrested eight days later. The blonde Venus, real name Phyllis Ayers, failed at love and death the first week 
as this seductive burlesque queen attempted to overdose on sleeping pills after her breakup with B-movie actor Jack LaRue. Ayers is hospitalized. LaRue denies everything but be arrested in the valley a week later for drunk driving. Ruth Dunty, 29, takes the stand in her divorce proceedings, and she denies that she danced the, quote, hoochie-coochie at a party, as claimed by her husband, Robert Dunty, 31. 14-year-old Lorraine Collins handed her father's pistol to 15-year-old Edward Eisenhart at a teenage party. The pistol misfires, and 15-year-old Alan Gordon is struck in the chest. His dying words, I'm shot in the heart. The Los Angeles Times reporter refers to this pistol now as, quote, the death gun. Lastly, in the news, Paul Cottrell, the nude burglar of Beverly Hills, is caught. Go on, ask me how they knew it was him. So, Jane Doe number one is the first front page murder of 1947. And the newspapers have been hungry for a big headline when Elizabeth Short suffers an orgy of torture before murder. Thank you for listening. The next podcast will focus on the big news of February 17th. The FBI identifies the fingerprints of Elizabeth Short. The police also are going to interview some hangers-on at a drugstore lunch counter in Long Beach. And in crime news, a white man kills a black woman in Japantown. Until then.